Luke, Luke 22, that can be found in your pew Bibles on page 747. Luke 22, 47 to 65. While he was speaking, a crowd came up, and a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I, do not, I don't know you, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and whipped bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. May God bless the reading of his word. As I mentioned last week, you know, as we head into Easter in the church calendar, you know, so we're also looking through, working our way through the Gospel of Luke as Jesus marched his way toward Good Friday and toward Easter. So this is one of the more, this is the darker time of the church calendar of the Christian year. And we see that in today's text, verses 63 to 65. The, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. This text actually poses two problems. It posed one problem in the first century, and it tends to pose a different problem in the 20th century. Now, the, the situation we face is this, is because, because God speaks through Scripture primarily. You know, if you want to hear from God, where do you go? Um, you can pray, but mostly, mostly, not always, but mostly prayer is us talking to God rather than Him talking to us. If you want to reliably hear from God, where do you go? The only place. You, you know, you don't go to a pastor. This is not that kind of a tradition where you want to hear from God, you come see me. 
I mean, some people do come and see me, and I, I can give advice, but I can't give you the word of God for you, right? If you want to hear from God, where do you go? You go to Scripture. But the, the challenge of Scripture is, it spoke to people in the first century. So we need to hear, we always want to ask, first of all, what was God saying to them through this passage? And then we ask, given what God said to them in our different situation, what is God saying to us through this passage? Now, it takes a little bit more attention, a little bit more work, but that's what we're also going to do today. What is God saying to them, and then in their context, and then in our context, what's he saying to us? And so, to understand this passage, well, first we have to understand the problem in the first century that this, these three verses posed, a problem in the first century. What was that problem? And how does Luke respond to that problem? And then we can look at the problem that they pose in the, in the 21st century and what they say to us in our context. What problem is posed by these verses? The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy. Who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. What theological problem does this pose? Theological problem. Probably it's not transparent to us. So I want to show you a very, it's, it's, it's a gruesome video of illegal events, but it's very short. So we're going to look at that video and that'll be an introduction to what the theological problem is in this text. Can we have the light, all the stage lights off first? And then, okay, David. Unclear if they hit Gaddafi's car, but when rebels pour in, they tell the BBC's Gabrielle Gatehouse he was hiding in this drainage pipe. They say they discovered him here just before 12 o'clock this afternoon. They pulled him out of the hole, and one fighter told me that Mama Gaddafi said to him, what did I do to you? We kitchen in there. And we shot him. The fatal shot reportedly fired by this man, proudly brandishing Gaddafi's gold gun. Rebels reportedly propped Gaddafi on the hood of a car for minutes, apparently parading her prize through the streets. We want him alive. We want him alive, one man was heard saying before Gaddafi was dragged off the hood towards an ambulance. But Gaddafi died in the ambulance. Abdul Jalil Abdelaziz, a doctor who accompanied the body in the ambulance during the 120-mile drive to Misrata, said Gaddafi died from bullet wounds, the head and the chest. Now, I wouldn't typically show something like this in church, but, you know, we just read about something like this in the Bible, right? Now, why? Here's the question. Why is it when a dictator falls, a feared dictator... Somebody who's massacred, left an entire country in fear. Why is it when they fall that typically people will happily show his capture, they'll slap him around a bit, they'll kill him if they have an opportunity. Or the announcer will tell us he was found hiding in a drainage ditch. You know, then they kill him, they put his body on display, and people come by in a long line taking photos beside him. Why do people do this with dictators? Now there's a difference obviously. Jesus was violent and he wasn't a dictator, but, but why they do it today with dictators is the same reason they did it with Jesus. 
and it poses a problem that we never think about. You see, why they do it with Gaddafi is to mock and humiliate, to show that while we feared him once, now he's just impotent. You know, we can kick him around and, and nothing happens to us. It's, a, it's an opportunity to abuse him, to mock him, to humiliate him. Now, so when the, the men, the soldiers who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him, they blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. In their eyes, bear in mind, not in our eyes, but in their eyes, Jesus was kind of like Gaddafi. I mean, he wasn't a dictator, and he hadn't killed a lot of people. But the Romans thought that Jesus was leading an insurrection. And our text even says this. Remember, when the, when the police come to arrest Jesus in the garden, what does he say to them? You come out to me with, sub, with clubs and swords as if I'm an insurrectionist? Uh, some of your versions say thief, but it, that's not. it's really rebel or guerrilla. You come out after me as if I'm a gorilla. So the Romans are viewing Jesus as a gorilla, and they want to send a message. You know, we have this old saying in English, you don't use a cannon to kill a flea. Okay, you don't use a cannon to kill a flea. You use a cannon to send a message to all the other fleas. Now, the Jews were an occupied country in the first century, and they hated it. And there were many rebellions against the Romans. And the Romans would typically come in after an active rebellion. They would typically come in, arrest all the people they could, and crucify a few hundred of them in public to send a message to all the other fleas. Well, they thought Jesus was starting another rebellion. And they thought, okay, send a message. Not just a message about Jesus, but a message about Israel. You call this guy your king. He can't stand up to us. You know, our soldiers beat him and slap him around. He's impotent. Not only he, not only Jesus, but all, your country. It's a way of subjecting the entire country to mockery. And so they, they beat Jesus. They mocked him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy to us. Who did this to you? And they said many other insulting things. Now, interestingly, this is a first century problem, not a 21st century problem. Because what have we done with it? In hindsight, we've written revisionist history. In hindsight, we look back at that and we see it as something different. We don't see Jesus as a guerrilla, an insurrectionist, a failed leader. Uh, this mockery doesn't injure us the way it injured them. It doesn't cause us doubts the way it caused them because we've reinterpreted it. And the songs we sang today describe two of the ways that we've reinterpreted it. Notice one of the songs we sang. Amazing love that sent his son to suffer in my stead. So when we read about Jesus being beaten and bloodied and mocked, in our minds what we say is, this doesn't demonstrate his impotence, his incompetence, his failing. This to us demonstrates his strength, his great love for us. This kind of abuse is what we deserve, but instead God let him bear it. And so it becomes a virtue. And we reinterpret it in a second way. Notice again from this song we sang. From the cross, from the grave, you rose victoriously. 
so it's not a problem for us because we know the cross is followed by the resurrection. And so the power of the resurrection overcomes the weakness of the arrest and the crucifixion. But in the first century, they would have looked for power and they would have seen this, they would have heard this message about a crucified Messiah. It can't be. By definition, if he's crucified, he's not a Messiah. If he's a victim, he's not victor. So that was the problem Luke has to face. How can you explain what they did to Jesus? How can you explain if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's son of God, how can you explain this? The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded and said, prophesy. How can you, how can this happen? And you see, actually, some people still struggle with this today, 21st century. They're called Muslims. You see, Muslims deny that Jesus was crucified. Why? Because Allah would not let his prophet die that way. God, God would not allow it. So Allah rescued Jesus and put Simon in his place. Not, not Simon Peter, but put the, put the cross. Remember, uh, Jesus' cross was carried by Simon. Jesus, uh, Allah put somebody else in Jesus' place. So somebody else was crucified. And it's a great trick that Allah played on the Romans. Because God would not allow his son to be victimized in this way. It's a problem in the first century. Now, it's a problem that Jesus was killed. In the 21st century, for some people, there's a bit of a problem. A different sort of problem. For some people who are professed to be Christians, there's a different sort of problem posed by this. Now, you may know the song, In My Place He Stood Condemned, In My Place, by Matt Boswell and Michael Bleeker. In my place he stood condemned. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become his righteousness. You probably know the song, but you might not know why that song was written. There's been a long history in the last 50, 75 years of some, you could call liberal Christians, some people who you know, have the form of Christianity but kind of deny some of the, some of the truths of it. That they can't come to terms with the notion that God, is hot, that God is angry about sin, that God has wrath, and that God punishes Christ in our place. And so the, to mock it, basically, they, they say, this doctrine can't be right. It can't be that God allowed Jesus to be crucified, that God punished Jesus for my sins, because what, 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 why can't that be? That would make God guilty of cosmic child abuse. God killed his innocent son so that he wouldn't kill us. Cosmic child abuse. Now, I don't know how much we need to get into this because I don't know how much you'll be exposed to it. Uh, one of my sons was exposed to it at Christian school because there, there are some now evangelicals or people who claim to be evangelicals who have used this similar language. Saying, we got, we got to figure out some other way to address this whole issue of the wrath of God and why did Jesus die? Because this would be cosmic child abuse for God to punish his own son, who was innocent, instead of punishing us for our guilt. Right? Cosmic child abuse. 
And so what happened is two theologians, J.I. Packer and Mark Deaver, a theologian and a pastor, wrote a book. And the book was entitled, In My Place, Condemned He Stood. And Matt Boswell and Michael Bleeker read that book. And they were so moved by it, they wrote the song, In My Place, He Stood Condemned. They were responding in their song to the charge that God is guilty of cosmic child abuse. These two are connected. Was Jesus killed? If he was killed by the Romans, he's a victim, not a hero. A mockery, not the Son of God. If he was killed by God, then God is guilty of criminal conduct. Was Jesus killed? And this is really the question that Luke is answering here. When we see this text, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, him, demanded of him, prophesy, who hit you? Was Jesus a victim? Now these last two or three verses, this is the climax of this whole section. And only when we get to these verses do we realize why Luke wrote everything that went before it. But notice this. Luke's answer is different than ours. Our answer is, he died out of love. Our answer is, he rose again. So we see his love, we see his power, so we don't worry about the impotence of his suffering. We don't worry about the fact that he looks like a victim and he looks like he's impotent, he looks like he has no power. We don't worry about it because of his love and his, and his resurrection. That's not Luke's answer. Luke's answer is this. Fundamentally, Jesus was not killed. The Romans did not kill him. God did not kill him. Fundamentally, Jesus was not killed. Fundamentally, Jesus died by his own volition. And that's the point of this whole chapter. Four times Luke makes that point in this chapter. Four times we see Jesus looks like events are spitting out of his control. Jesus looks like he has no influence. You know, he looks like a victim. He's looking like he's being battered by forces from one side and then from the other side. But four times we see Jesus facing some crisis. It looks like he's out of control. And Luke says, here's the crisis. Here is, here's what appears to be his loss of control. And then Luke follows it up immediately with this. Jesus is in control. He is powerful here. His answer is not, yes, he was out of control, but he suffered it for love. His answer was not simply, I mean, that's true, but that's not his answer here. And his answer was not simply, we see his power in the resurrection. That's true, but that's not his answer here. His answer here is this. We see Jesus' power not just in the resurrection. We see Jesus' power on the cross. And in the beatings that preceded the cross, in the betrayal that preceded the beatings, in the denials that accompanied the beatings, in every step of the process, Jesus is in control. He is sovereign over the universe. He's not conquered by the Romans. He's not fundamentally betrayed by his disciples. 
He's not let down and disappointed by those around him. He's not the victim of circumstances. He's the victor through all the circumstances. And Luke makes this point four times leading up to these verses. So let me show you how he makes the point. Beginning in verses 47 to 48. How does the account start? Verse 47, page 747. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And Judas approached Jesus to kiss him. So here comes the first incident. Jesus and Judas. And why it looks like Judas, Jesus is out of control. Here's Judas coming to betray him. Now, we've recently heard in the last week or two about uh, some defector from the uh, Assad regime in Syria. Now, what is it? a defector always shows you, having a high-level defector is an indication that the government has lost its power or is losing its power. And we take great delight in this. You could see Judas defection as a sign of Jesus' impotence. But what does Luke see it as? Jesus asked him, as Judas comes to kiss him, Jesus asks him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Uh, Do you see what Luke is implying here? Judas doesn't say why he's coming. Jesus doesn't need to be told. He's a prophet. He understands what's going on. And Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Remember Daniel 7, the Son of Man? The Son of Man who comes from heaven with heavenly power? Jesus asserts his power. He has this knowledge. And so he's turning the tables on Judas. And it's not that Judas has tricked him. It's not that he's been fooled. It's not that he's lost control. He labels Judas a traitor, accuses him of treachery. So he's turned the tables. This is not a sign of Jesus' impotence. Jesus is powerful even in the midst of it. He knows what's happening before it happens. He knows what Judas intends before Judas ever does it. And he affirms his identity as the Son of Man. Notice the next incident, Jesus' followers. When they saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Now, clearly, chaos is descending. And Jesus is rapidly losing control of the situation. And this is just extraordinarily ironic. Remember, Jesus had recently told them to, to sell their, you know, Jesus was telling them a metaphor, a parable. He said, look, uh, sell, your, sell your clothes and buy a sword if you don't have a sword. And they thought he meant by a real sword. So when Jesus is arrested, these, they got two swords among 12 of them. And they're going to fight the Romans with two swords among 12 of them. And all they managed to do, and shows up what skilled swordsmen they are, all they managed to do was cut the guy's ear off. You know, the head is a lot bigger than the ear, but they can't manage to cut the head off. They, they cut the ear off. Things are way out of control here. That's how it looks. And But what does Luke do? He introduces Jesus to the story. Jesus answered them. Jesus answered them. No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. See, Jesus is still in control. He rebukes his disciples. This is not how this is going to go down. This is not who I am. This is not what we're going to do. And he stops them. And then what does he say or do? He touches the man's ear and heals him. Now, think about this. Let's say you've had some Taekwondo and you got annoyed at something I said. 
If you'd seen me actually physically heal somebody, do you think you'd want to throw a punch at me? If I can heal somebody, presumably there's an indication of power there. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why Jesus let himself be captured, but Luke is clearly telling us Jesus let himself be captured. They're not capturing him. Jesus is surrendering. A third incident, same thing. To the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, the elders who had come for him, all of these, the the whole band of people come to arrest him. And what does Jesus say then when he looks like he's totally overwhelmed by the forces opposed against him? And Jesus said, Am I leading an insurrection that you've come out against me with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. So the religious leaders come out to arrest him as an insurrectionist, as a troublemaker. And Jesus is not cowed by their presence. Instead, he stands up to them and rebukes them. In the midst of a frightful situation where his life is in jeopardy, Jesus is not weak, he's strong. Am I leading a rebellion? He rebukes them. Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you never laid a hand on me. He calls them cowards rather than responding himself as a coward. And then finally in the fourth incident, I won't read the whole thing, but you know it, when Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus is taken off and arrested and Peter trails along behind. And then Peter, poor Peter, you know, for all of history, we know this about Peter, right? Uh, A servant girl. Think of this. In first century terms, not 21st century terms, first century terms. A a woman, Peter a man. A servant, Peter a free man. A girl, Peter an adult. And he doesn't have the courage to stand up to this little girl. And he denies Jesus three times. What would you think of a leader who can't even count on his closest followers to stick by him in a time of trouble. And Jesus and Peter are separated. They're too far apart to talk. Peter's in the courtyard. Jesus is inside the house, inside their palace. But Jesus hears the cock crow, and he looks up, and he makes eye contact with Peter. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. What does this remind us? What does it tell us? Even while he was being denied, Jesus was in control because he had predicted this very thing. And then when it happens, he looks up, he finds Peter, he makes eye contact. He said, you see, I told you it was going to happen. And Luke is telling his readers, you see, he knew it was going to happen. And it happened just as he said. And then the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and they demanded, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And Luke is telling us, Jesus knows who hit him. That's not what this is about. This is not a a mockery that demonstrates Jesus' impotence. 
his lack of power. There's something else going on here. And Luke, because he's writing a historical narrative, he only hints at it. He doesn't come out straight and say it. But the Gospel John is far more direct. And Jesus in John's Gospel says it directly. Because in John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, we read this. Jesus says. Jesus says directly in John 10 what Luke is implying in Luke 22. Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. You see, it's not the Romans who killed Jesus. It's not the Father who kills Jesus. This is not, he is not a failed revolutionary. He is not like Gaddafi today, a subject of mockery. He's not the victim of some uh, uh, weird, cosmic child abuse. He was not killed by the Romans. He was not killed by God. Jesus says, I lay down my life. I lay it down. I choose. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And we know, obviously, why he laid it down. Not because the Romans took it from him. Not because the Father made him do it. We know he laid it down for us because he loves us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we would praise you. We would praise you for your love that led to the cross. We would praise you for the power that raised you from the cross. But we would praise you too for your power that's evident, even while you submit to beating and abuse. We would praise you for your power and your love as they both converged in the cross. We praise you in your name. Amen.